morning, folks. It is 10 a.m. here on the sunny Gold Coast. I have my full cup of coffee. No bad days. We like a good day. Sure. And I am here with Ding Dong, who's at my front door. No other than Mr. Dweezil Zappa. Hey, Dweezil. Hey, how are you? I'm going good, man. I'm going good. Thank you for taking the time to come and, and join me. Sure, no problem. Uh, now, I'm sure people will let me know if I have any echo going on because as luck would have it, I turned on my other computer at the last minute to check that things were streaming and it wanted to take control of my headphones. So folks, if you hear any annoying echo going on, please let me know and I'll, I'll tend to that. But uh, other than that, I'm good to go. Dweezil. All right. I usually start these, as I said to you, by simply asking my guests while I sip away my coffee, what started the love affair with the electric guitar? Well, for me, I always saw my dad playing guitar ever since I was little growing up. He played different guitars, either on stage or at home or in the studio. So over the years, I would start to see certain guitars and they would give me a different feeling. What I really liked was when my dad was playing the SG because the, the horns were kind of, it looked kind of like a, a bat or something. It was like, a, you know, for a little while, it reminded me of Batman or something cool. when I was a kid, you know, so I just thought it looked cool. And other guitars that he played looked cool as well, but it wasn't until much later on that I realized certain elements of them, whether it was a Les Paul or a Telecaster or a Stratocaster, the different things that make those guitars have a personality. You know, he had a guitar that was given to him by Jimi Hendrix that was burned and it used to just be sitting on the wall, just the body of it. And in, a, in the mid seventies, he decided to have it put back together, but he did some interesting things to it. He had a um, transducer pickup that was put underneath the neck so that it picked up. It was like uh, the same kind of pickup that you would put on like a marimba or something. Cool. So it picked up the noise of the neck and finger noise and things like that. And he could blend that in. So it was almost like an acoustic element. It was before guitars had piezo pickups and stuff like that. So he had that plus all these other extra electronics and different pickups in this thing. And he brought it back to life. And that guitar I used to really love to see because it had been burned up, but then it came back to life with these other pieces and it was burned up wood, but then it had a brass bridge and a brass nut and this bird's eye maple neck that was on it and all these extra knobs. And it was just such a cool guitar. So the look of the guitars evoked a certain kind of feeling. And I just remember at a certain point thinking I'd like to be able to play guitar. I, but I, my dad's music was always so complicated and sophisticated sounding. I knew you had to know a lot about music to do what he did. And that was really the only music I heard growing up until I was about 12. I started to hear the radio and hear music at my friend's houses and things like that. So at that point, the biggest, most popular music in the world was hard rock or metal. And Van Halen was the biggest band in the world, at least in California, that was the biggest band you could uh, imagine. And, um, but I was also hearing music from, Ozzy Osbourne with Randy Rhodes playing guitar, and of course, ACDC and Led Zeppelin and a lot of these kinds of bands. 
Uh, but I got introduced also maybe a little before that to things that were in my dad's record collection. So albums from Queen or The Who or Jimi Hendrix. And I got, I learned about the Beatles and things like that. But the thing for me was my dad's music was so orchestral and so broad in all the uh, arrangements that when I started to hear normal music on the radio, I thought to myself, where's the rest of it? Because <laughs> right. it, it was much more simplistic compared to the music I had grown up hearing. So I had to adjust to that, but it also made guitar centric music easier for me to focus on. So that's why Van Halen and Randy Rhodes playing with Ozzy Osbourne, which was just so much about the guitar was an immediate attraction where I thought, I want to learn to do that because I can really hear that. That's really jumping out to me. Uh, I like the playing, but I also like the sound, especially Edward Van Halen's guitar sound. There was just nothing like that. You know, there's only a few people that created guitar sounds that became so instantaneously addictive to your ear where you thought to yourself, I don't know what that is, but I want to know what that is. I want to yeah. know how to do that. How can I make that sound? So, you know, Jimi Hendrix was a huge catalyst in that. And of course, Eddie Van Halen, same, same impact or arguably even greater impact for a guitar style for it to take over and people want to learn what he was doing. So all that stuff was hitting right around that time. I mean, Van Halen's debut album came out in 78, but I started really hearing all that music around 1980, 81. So not too long after it was pretty new on the scene. And I was just enamored with the sound and I wanted to figure out how to do that. And that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. Man, you said around the 80, 81. To me, that's that's my favorite era of um, of Eddie's sound. He really had it nailed around that time, I feel. Um, well, I mean, my favorite record is Fair Warning. And so that one, I think that came out in 1981 uh, or early 1982. I can't remember offhand. But that is the period where he was – at his most innovative in terms of his playing and his sound was just incredible on that record. But the funny thing is on that tour, his guitar sound was nothing like the record. Really? It was a much thinner sound. And if you listen to any of the, the rare bootlegs that are out there from that tour, it was almost as if something was wrong with the equipment on that tour. Wow. Because it was really a thin sound, almost like a Telecaster sometimes. Um, so it was interesting that the record itself would have so much bottom end and such a, a great, uh, mid range element to it. And then the actual tone live was drastically different. Why do you think that is? I think it might've had to do with the wireless system and some of the things that were involved with putting on a massive show of that level. Yep. Uh, with that much equipment and maybe the bootlegs that, that are around from that time because there's no proper recordings other than there's some videos from Oakland 
there's three videos that people know uh, yeah. Unchained, hear about it later and so this is love and even those it's a thinner sound than the fair warning album itself but not as thin as what you hear in some of the bootlegs so i'm not sure maybe there was like an out of phase issue or something at some point in the pa on some of these bootlegs or something but it's it's remarkably thin at times. I'm wondering if that's got something to do with him using the uh, the Variac as his uh, legend in the studio versus not taking that out live. I wonder if that's got something to do with it. I don't know that it does, but uh, you know, everything having to do with the studio and how something's captured, there's all kinds of little magic fairy dust that, okay, you might have 85 to 95% of your sound that's happening in the room but that's having to be captured by microphones, tape machine, EQ, compression, and those little things in the right combination can elevate that already great sound that you might have to the next level. And that combination that they had for that particular record was really magical. It was, it's an incredible sound that every time I hear it, I get inspired. I mean, I can turn it on and I can be right back to hearing it for the first time thinking, I'm energized by just the sound and what the feeling I get from it. And, and on the podcast that I do, which is called uh, Running with the Dweezil, where we talk about Van Halen and we go song by song in detail with different guitar guests. And we talk about production, we talk about the, the sounds, the equipment, all that stuff. But one of the things that comes up is that the description of the feeling that you get from hearing that music is fuck yeah you know you hear you put it on and you're like fuck yeah that sounds good you know you just get excited about yeah. it yeah and it's really hard to get that feeling from any music now so van halen the, the blend of those guys especially for classic van halen the first six albums there's something about that fuck yeah ingredient that is in there because it's all those four different personality types, the perfect timing, everything all came together for them to be what they were. And they were really at the apex, uh, right around fair warning. I mean, that's just for me that that's pretty clear and pretty obvious, but, but I mean, they've, they've had a lot of great music over the years, but I think that that is the, the, the record and the, the time frame where every time I listen to it, it doesn't matter how many years it's been since I've listened to it, I can still get that excitement from that particular sound and that record. Absolutely. So when, when the bug hit you and, and you heard Van Halen and you got that fuck yeah feeling, what was the next step for you? Did you hit dad up and say, can you show me some chords or how do I get well, started? Well, I got a guitar thing? when I was six and I, it was a music master. So that's kind of like a dual sonic, a little um, short range Fender guitar, short scale. And uh, I had a pig nose amp. And so I had a cable, I had the amp, which you could either run on a battery or plug into the wall. And then I had the guitar. I didn't really know anything about it. I just kind of banged on the strings and made some noise with it, but I didn't know what to do with it when I was six or eight years old, it wasn't until I was 12 when I started to hear the music that we were talking about, where in my head, when the music was not playing, I could still hear it and be thinking, I want to hear or I want to be able to do that. And that was the motivation to sit there with the guitar and just kind of figure out 
what was happening and to get a jump start on technique and, and ideas about what you're supposed to do with the instrument, I got a few lessons from the guitar player in my dad's band, who at the time was Steve Vai. And he was 20 or 21 years old, and I was 12. And so my dad said, hey, can, Steve, can you show Dweezil a couple of things? And he made a little notebook where he drew out some scales and some chords. And my first lesson, I could barely do anything. I couldn't put anything together at all. So he went back to my dad and he's like, I don't think he's ever going to be cut out for this. You know, he's not really able to make any of this connect. Yeah. Um, but then the next week I had put a bunch of stuff together and it was a whole different ball game. And week after week I was making rapid improvements to the point where the first thing I ever recorded in the studio was I'd only been playing guitar for nine months and it just happened to be, through a, a series of crazy circumstances that Edward Van Halen would produce that first song wow. that I made. So he, me and my 12 year old friends who had this little band and we'd only barely been playing, we were in the studio with Edward Van Halen and Don Landy, who was the engineer who recorded the, uh, the classic Van Halen albums. They were the producer engineer team at my dad's home studio and we made two songs and I got to learn how the studio worked, how to do recording, how to punch in, how to play along with things and all that stuff. I had a crash course from Edward Van Halen and Don Landy showing that stuff to me when I was 12 years old and never had been in the studio doing that at all. So it was a crazy, crazy experience. That's, that's setting the benchmark pretty high straight up, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was amazing, and, and it's not lost on me that that was an amazing experience. Uh, and it was just crazy how it came about anyway, because only weeks before doing that, we got a call to the house. It was somebody purporting to be Edward Van Halen. Now, back then, you had no way of knowing anything about artists. You saw their album covers, you saw the liner notes. And if you were lucky, you might hear them on a radio interview, or maybe there was a TV interview, just maybe. But we didn't have MTV or any of the social media kind of stuff where you can see into people's private lives and, and all that kind of stuff. There was nothing to indicate even the sound of Edward Van Halen's voice. Yeah. So it could have just been anybody saying that he was Eddie Van Halen. Yep. But my dad ended up saying, well, okay, well, come on over. And about you know, the call came in and about 15 minutes later, he was at the house. So it was like, the, it's, you can't even describe how crazy that feeling was because here he was arguably the most famous musician in the world at that time. And he just shows up at the house. I think I've read stories about it. Is it is it true he showed up in he's like Ferrari or Lamborghini in the jumpsuit? Yeah, he had, he he was in the Lamborghini truck that uh, those uh, Lamborghini trucks that used to be part of the Iraqi army. Uh, so it was like a big SUV style Lamborghini, uh, and you could hear it from at least you know uh, three blocks away as it was approaching. Uh, and he shows up and he's got the women and children first jumpsuit on the Van Halen necklace with the Van Halen logo and no shirt. It's the same 
outfit essentially from the women and children first album and then he had a guitar not in a case that he was holding it was a, a purple guitar with a humbucker in the neck and in the bridge which was rare because he was known for only just having the bridge humbucker sure and it had a piece of tape over the headstock so you couldn't see the name of the brand of guitar he was saying oh i'm about to endorse this brand of guitar i can't tell you what it is but here here's one of the guitars so um as soon as he came in of course i asked him to start playing i said how do you play eruption how do you play mean street and he started playing all that stuff up close so i was able to see exactly how he was doing that stuff and then he handed the guitar to me and of course i could barely play anything but that evening that purple guitar got passed around my dad invited steve Vai to come over so it was edward van halen my dad steve Vai, and me and this guitar just kind of passing around in a circle everybody would play a little bit tell some stories or talk about guitar and it was the craziest thing he was there from i want to say around like nine o'clock till almost two in the morning you, you do realize you do like realize to the average person how mind-blowing that is right <laughs> oh yeah like even to me still i mean it's the craziest thing you know yeah wow so learning from steve Vai, and then having edward van halen sort of showing you the ropes what what do you think you got out of that that other people wouldn't get is there like some little sacred piece of knowledge that each person handed over to you that you well we live in a day and age now where any information you want you can just google it or you can go on youtube and find a video of some instruction on how to do virtually anything so in terms of guitar there wasn't anything like that even close to that so for example back when at that time when there was notation or even tablature showing how to play something like eruption or spanish fly they indicated that as notation for flamenco style picking and left hand uh positions instead of hammer on you know tapping kind of stuff so nothing about showing anybody how to do something was correct you know if you looked at that and you tried to learn it like with flamenco style picking and left hand stuff not only does it not sound like what Ed was doing, it's really hard to play that stuff that way. Uh, and you have to have a really good flamenco technique, et cetera. Yep. So, but watching him just do it, it was instant instruction in the same way that you can watch a video. But this was burned into my mind. Like there were, I would never unsee that because yeah. it was, I was so focused on that. And I had already tried to imagine how is he doing this stuff? And so what I really learned from it was he did a lot of things that had open strings. He would play something and then he would pull off to an open string. And I didn't realize that that was even an option. But when I saw that he was doing things like that, it made sense. I saw all the positions where he was playing certain things. So when I tried to learn it, I remembered, oh, well, he was up around this area when he was playing it when I saw him play that part and that helped because on the guitar for people that don't know you might be able to play the same note in five different places mm. so it's going to sound different in all of those places based on the tension of the string or the thickness of the string 
And you need to find the place that is the playable place that also sounds closest to what you're hearing. Mm. And that was very uh, helpful in, in determining the positions that he actually played the stuff versus trying to make position jumps and looking for places to play those notes. He had a very um, elegant way of placing the stuff so that it was easily manageable in playing positions. He didn't have a lot of stuff that he played where his hand would have to go from here to here to here, all this kind of, he wasn't a crazy uh, position shifting player in that way. He had you know some tapping stuff that would move around, yep. but most of the stuff was really comfortable positions. And that was really key to understanding that that was the way you should play guitar, make the stuff playable, make it sit right. Even when he was playing hard stuff, it was still in compact positions that you could manage. Sure. And now the exact opposite of that is true in my dad's music. When you're trying to learn melodies that he wrote for other instruments and apply them to the guitar. So for example, if he wrote a part that was intended for marimba, that translates to the guitar in an entirely different way. Plus he was doing things where a lot of the melodies were based on intervals of fourths and on guitar fourths are stacked on the strings just right underneath each other or it's a big stretch so if you want to get to that note and if you start looking at things that are at a fast tempo the stuff that's stacked then you have a hard time picking in between the strings and if it's wide stretches and it's a fast tempo, there's a chance that you're not gonna get your finger to the right location and it's complicated. So all that kind of stuff is so hard to play in my dad's music. But as a, as a kid, I thought one day, I wanna learn all these complicated melodies. I wanna be able to play that stuff because I love the sound of it. But I had to go through the whole technical approach of rock guitar playing and Van Halen and Randy Rhodes to build scalar and picking technique before I could even think of trying to figure out a way to play the hard stuff in my dad's music, which then once I was going there, I had to completely unlearn all the other stuff. I had to, I took like two years to uh, recalibrate how I play guitar, different picking style, all this different um, fingering technique, which, which started to group notes on strings differently and it was the kind of process that almost no one would undertake because I'd already been playing guitar for, I don't know, almost 30 years when I decided to do the complete overhaul. Really? really? Yeah. Wow. So it was one of those things where it's like, if you said, okay, I've learned to breathe. Now I'm going to change how I breathe. That's what I had to do with the guitar. It was, it was a complete, like I've already been playing and I had developed a good amount of technical proficiency, but I said, okay, I have to forget all of that because I cannot play what I want to play with those techniques. Sure. I have to see it differently and I have to do it differently. Yep. And it took me a couple of years to learn a new way to play. And during that time, I was also putting a band together to learn to play my dad's music. So. Before I ever did the first year of the Zappa Plays Zappa project, 
I had already spent two years learning the music and changing how I played guitar drastically. So wow. it was, uh, it was, it was like getting a lobotomy and then training for the Olympics, you yeah. know? Yeah. So it was a, a, a lot of craziness, but over the years, I've learned to like tearing that technical side of things down and having an ability to then take a deeper dive and look at certain things independently. So even now with um, having the forced time off during COVID, I haven't even played guitar hardly at all, maybe two weeks over the past year. Wow. But when I have played, what I focused on was left hand only. And I wanted to get a sound just from my left hand because really how you touch the string has a lot more tone than what you actually realize. Absolutely. And be, being able to put your finger in the right place and get that sound and have your fingers know where to go without having to do anything with your right hand actually made my right hand behave better because my thought process was my left hand is free. My right hand doesn't have to worry about which notes I'm gonna to try to pick because if I skip something with my right hand, my left hand's still gonna play that note. So it started to change a lot of what my playing is. So it's something that I'm gonna focus on again when I start getting a chance to play again. But it's a, a totally different perspective that I wish I would have started with back when I was 12 years old. Yeah. Because it would have given me so much freedom to be expressive with just dynamic range and ability to move around and actually have accuracy yep. uh, and independence. Yep. It's such a brilliant time, I think, with uh, YouTube and the like to be able to take lessons from your favorite players. It's like, hey, I really like how this guy does this. Look up a lesson, you can see it. Now, you're very lucky that being up and close with, with Edward, you would have clicked onto the whole tremolo picking thing being done with the middle finger. Yeah. Early, yeah. 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 I, I saw say, him do all that stuff. I could never do it um, with the accuracy from going string to string. There's a certain wrist angle that he has, and that I think is now more known to people. There's a, a website where there's a, a guy that has a thing called Cracking the Code. I was going to bring that up. And Cracking the Code shows you every picking style. Mm -hmm. And the difference of wrist position or forearm position. And that really does make a difference when you start um, having a look at what makes it possible for you to get from string to string without getting uh, stuck. And the thing about Eddie's picking style is that he did not ever set out to be a guy that would pick every single note. Sometimes he might pick two of three, hammer the third with his finger, uh, or he would just pick one and do legato style stuff. But he could also pick all the notes if he wanted for certain kinds of passages. But I think what was great about his playing was that he didn't have a predictable sense of where that would take place. Sometimes he'd pick a lot of notes. Sometimes he would do all legato or all tapping. Yep. So that range and the colors and the tonality that he would get from those things, the timbre 
of that stuff was great. And it, I think a lot of people missed out on what is great about that. It, you could hear it in his rhythm playing, the dynamics, and his lead playing. And a lot of what he did involved turning the volume down. And then when he wanted to be full on, you know, he, he was there. But he was constantly using the volume uh, knob to give himself different tones. And that's what a lot of people did back in the 70s. That was, the, you turned your amp up pretty loud, but you turned your guitar down to have a cleaner rhythm sound. And then when you wanted to go to lead, you just turned it back up. That's kind of lost on a lot of people now because you can have presets mm. and you can have it be totally clean and you don't have to use your guitar volume. But, you know, I, I've not been a player that used my guitar volume for specifically the reason that I've just said it's sometimes it's faster to just step on a pedal or step on a preset and you can be where you need to be and just focus on what you have to play rather than constantly fiddling with a knob and then get back to picking. Yep. That being said, it is nice to be able to do that when it's appropriate for the kind of playing, like even Angus Young is that kind of guy. Yep. He's, using his volume knob to get a tone for his rhythm sound or when he wants to pluck or do some different things, but he wants to be full on, then he's got a little bit more sustain. Yep. And the guys that are old school like that, even Jimi Hendrix played that way. What you have is a much bigger dynamic range and the whole band learns to play within that dynamic range as well. Cause if he's going to turn down, you can't have everybody else bashing away or now you can't hear it, you know? So everybody's just kind of moving with the dynamics of all that stuff. And they just learn to play within that, which is, that's just such a great thing that happens when bands really know how to play together. I got to admit, I do ride the volume knob quite a lot and it is great. Just that those little nuances of like, I've just got that tiny bit too much gain or just back it off. And Dave Leslie has just Dave dropped Leslie a comment in the chat room saying guitar volume knob equals channel switching for old guys. Yes, that's right. That's pretty much. But yeah. uh, Dave, we were just talking about you before we went live. I hope you're doing well. I haven't seen you in forever, but uh, we had some really good times when we were doing some stuff in the studio and, and on that Van Halen tour. Now, speaking of Van Halen, uh, you mentioned his rhythm playing. Yeah. And not long after Ed passed, I got asked to guest at a uh, Van Halen tribute show that was up in Brisbane. And um, just learning the songs for that, it really struck me. I mean, everyone talks about his solos and, yeah, they're fantastic. But it's the stuff he's playing when he's not soloing that is just mind-blowing. It's not, hey, I'm just going to strum an A chord or whatever now. Right. He's just writes parts. Everything is a part. He's not just filling in things. Yeah. It's yeah. It's not like a cycle of chord progressions. Mm. The, the things that he plays are embellished and they change depending on his mood. So he might play the same song differently each time. And even live, he'll probably change certain fills in between things. But to be able to have a vocabulary that works that way is hard to develop. And he did that at an early age. In his early 20s, he had written probably most of his best songs that continued to appear on the subsequent albums. So a lot of the stuff that he had been 
working on, uh, he was just on fire for years with so much creativity and innovation. And one of the things that's really interesting is that on the first record, he was using a guitar that didn't have a locking nut, right? He had that um, regular Fender tremolo on there, but that guitar almost never went out of tune. Now, that's impossible, but he found a couple of ways to make it stay in tune and it had nothing to do with a locking tremolo. It had something to do with changing how the nut was cut and changing the bridge so that the strings, when they come through the bridge, they don't stay at the very bottom. It was altered so that they came closer to the upper saddle. Oh, cool. So he was able to have a little bit more stability there, but there's a, a few other things that come with that where when he would play, there was a certain amount of vibrato bar technique stuff that he did that you would hear him do a lot. And it wasn't necessarily just because he wanted to hear that sound. Part of that was putting the guitar back in tune. There's a certain thing that he had to do to hit the vibrato bar a certain way so that he had checkpoints to hear when he would play something. So you, if you hear him dive bomb a low string and then come back up on a D string or a G string, he would listen for that and then he would make adjustments by doing either a silent pull on the string, like something that would shock it back to a position that made it move at the nut or whatever, or he would actually do a, a wide big bend where he'd bend multiple frets to push that string from sharp back to in pitch. And these were techniques that he learned to use and it, it became part of his songwriting. Wow. But when you hear him do some of that stuff, he's putting the guitar back in tune. Yep, yep, it's so become it's a part of his style. Of his yeah, it's a crazy thing. It's like gear shifting or something, you know? Yep. Uh, but you don't realize it until you say, wait a minute, how did he keep that thing in tune? You listen to tons of bootlegs of him in those early days, that guitar is almost never out of tune and he's beating the hell out of the vibrato bar. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so there's certain things he did to tweak it so that the guitar would stay in better pitch, but he also had techniques that were checkpoints that were built into his playing. And to me, that's utterly fascinating and so innovative. And it's really not something that's talked about. So speaking about him developing his own uh, original style, um, at what age did you start writing your own music? Well, right away when I picked up the guitar, I would try to write my own music. But the thing that is really interesting, uh, and I've talked about this on the podcast a few times with different people, is some players develop their own style almost instantly. They just have their thing and that's just what they do. Other players, it takes some time for them to find out what their voice is going to be. And every guitar player always has a set of influences and you learn to play like your heroes. Some people want to learn just to get in the ball game, just sound an overview of that sound. And some people want to get note for note. I was a, I want to get note for note and get the exact sound as close as I can because it's like cooking. You know, you want to know what the ingredients are because if you had some food you really liked and you might not ever get a chance to go back to that restaurant because it was in a city you may never travel to again, 
You want to know how you can recreate that taste. And so for me, that's always been the fascinating part of listening to something and then trying to find a way to have similar equipment or get the same sound with entirely different equipment, but still be able to get what makes you feel that way and what it makes it sound like when you do it. So that combination with also learning songs note for note, to me, if I couldn't play something which sounded very much like I was playing note for note with whatever the thing was, I didn't feel like I was playing the song. Yeah. And so other people might take the approach of you learn some of the basic chords and then you embellish and do your own thing, but you say, oh, I'm playing the song. To me, that never sounded like you're actually playing the song. If you didn't play like all the fills and the solo note for note and have the vibrato and all that stuff, that wasn't playing what Edward Van Halen played. Now, to play exactly like him, you really can't. But to get as close as you can to your own ability, that was, for me, that was kind of a, a lifelong passion of, of learning some of those things. And But along the way, there were all, all kinds of other players that I also really liked, which I would go through a similar process. So over a period of time, I've learned to play in different styles or play similar to the style of my favorite players. But as you do that, you also learn how to take what you like from that and make it your own and create this other vocabulary for yourself. But for me, I don't feel like I really found what my voice was on the guitar until probably the most, um, the, the way that was uh, the most incongruous way, which was for me to be playing my dad's music and learning a lot of stuff note for note in that in in his style what i what i had to do was i had to end up being able to be at a place where i could play in context to his music because he might play a seven or eight minute or even ten minute uh guitar solo that was completely extemporaneous he didn't have a set group of licks where it's like oh lick number one lick number one fast yeah. you know he didn't have any of that kind of stuff he just he would listen to the music and he would react to the music so every time he played a solo, it was different. Now to do that, you have to have a really big vocabulary rhythmically and melodically. You have to know musically that you can go on a tangent and decide to reharmonize whatever you're doing and, and have a band that can hear that and then go with you and build that. So as I was trying to be able to get to a place where I could speak using some of the same words he might use, but then make my own sentences with some of my own words. I had to know enough of his vocabulary and what the ingredients were to then be able to play basically using guidelines, guideposts. I would play some note for note parts. And then before I got to the next post that was note for note, I would have to fill in the gaps, sure. but I didn't want to take a left turn and make it sound like, okay, for the first 20 seconds, it sounds like Frank Zappa. And then it suddenly sounds like Van Halen or Brian May or whatever. It's how do I stay in the style of Frank Zappa, but also make it my own. And that's at that point where I started to, to develop a vocabulary of my own with a bunch of strategies on how to build melodic ideas. And that was when things really changed for me, but that was only maybe, uh, 
10 years ago or so really? where that stuff really started to kick in. And yep. I had already been playing for 30 years yep. or whatever, yep. you know? So, but I mean, I had always been pretty technically proficient and I could play rock music and all kinds of things. And I could play hard stuff on the guitar. And I probably had some of my own sounds even before what I'm talking about, but to really be able to be improvisational and create in the moment, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I felt like I was able to do that with, uh, with a, an ability to actually continually come up with new things. I still would repeat some things, but I had a much broader range where I could just explore and things would happen that would never happen again. And that's what I loved about my dad's style of playing is he would play something and the drummer would go with him or vice versa. And the stuff that would happen, you would never hear it again. It, it couldn't be duplicated ever because it's just a completely live thing. So stuff like that was what he loved. He loved to be able to be in the moment and do that and then hear it and realize it could never be done again. Wow. And so that was the goal was to try to get somewhere close to that. Yeah, it's really flying on the seat of your pants kind of stuff in it, the, the whole improvisational thing. I had Frank Gambale on uh, a few weeks back for a bit of a chat, and he was saying about uh, recording live with Chick Corea, and yeah. there was one solo, and he said, oh, I nailed it, it was just one one note. And he's like, man, can we go back and do that again? He goes, no, no, it's all, it's all you know improvised. And he goes, oh, but there was that wrong note. And he said, Chick just said to him, well, why did you play that note? And you know, like to be thrown in the deep end like that and not given a second chance. And so um, I'm guessing your dad was kind of like that too, huh? Well, the thing is he, there's a, there's a lot of different ways that guitar players can get from one place to another. And the thought process for some is very linear. So a guy like Frank Gambale, who is an amazing player, he is able to know that when he starts, he eventually wants to target this chord tone on this chord, he's going to get to a certain place and he's going to weave away contour to get to his target. But he already knows what that's going to sound like. He already knows what the pitch of that note with that chord is going to sound like. Now there might be, let's say 20% of the best guitar players in the world who have that ability, who think like that. Then, you maybe have another 20% that are kind of able to do that, but they are hearing things happen as they happen and they're reacting to it. And it's, Ooh, Hey, here's a surprise. Here's a cool thing. But then you have other people that have no idea and they're playing and they're hearing it as they're playing and they're trying to get somewhere. They don't know what chord tone or what note is going to be the exact right one to make you have a certain feeling. Sure. But sometimes they'll stumble on it and that will be the goosebumps kind of thing. That will be like, okay, this is the reason I play guitar. Yeah. And you're waiting to catch another one of those waves where something like that happens. So I think the majority of guitar players are who are not skilled or, you know, know a lot about theory are hearing themselves play as they're playing and they don't have the ability to predict what everything's going to sound like. So that's why a lot of their playing becomes so stuck in, here's my licks. Mm. I have what's comfortable. I can use this because 
it's not going to put me in a place where I suddenly play something that I really don't like. Now, being on the other side of that is if you take the chance and you play something that you really don't like and it's live, it is what it is. But if you take the chance and you play something you really do like and you could never do it again, then that's like, whoa, you know, like the biggest, you know, the greatest moment ever. So it's that thing of like how much risk reward can you tolerate? Yeah. And the guys that really know what everything is, it's almost uninteresting at a certain point because it's too predictable. They mm. know this note's gonna sound great. They can play something perfectly all the way through every time. Yeah. Yeah. At a certain point you're like, that's amazing. But I want to hear something where it's like I feel like, you know, you're on a, a windy road and you might go over the cliff because you can barely handle the car. But when you land on your feet, you're like, yes, you know. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing. That's what I feel like was in a lot of Edward Van Halen's playing. And there's there's a lot of different styles of music, and there are a lot of people that achieve that thing that I'm talking about in different styles. But for me, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle of all that. I've learned enough of the theory behind it all to have some sense of the linear part of it but it's too much for me to think about so i revert to the innate sense of i'm playing i'm hearing it i just heard the bass player play a line maybe i should try to answer him oh i just heard the drummer play a fill maybe i should pick up on that rhythm and when i can get in that frame of mind when I can listen to what everybody else is doing and react to it, I play much more interesting music to me than if I'm just in the driver's seat and I'm playing and I feel like everybody's trying to follow me. But that's the hardest thing is you have to listen. Mm. So I actually, I have a friend of mine named Tim Miller who's a great guitarist and he showed me that he used to just put a piece of paper down by his pedal board, it just said, listen. So I took it a step further and I just put a big piece of tape that was across my pedal board, like right next to all the buttons that just says, listen. And even though I'm staring at that, I might listen only 5% of the time. I have to force myself to look at that and remember, oh, that's what I need to do. And that is part of playing with people all the time and having the ability to know what happens when you have the, uh, the reaction because you can't learn that by sitting in your bedroom and just playing to backing tracks. You know, one of the one of the best things I ever learned, um, and it's fairly recent. I was uh, perusing the TrueFire site, and I believe you've got a few videos uh, teaching on TrueFire. Yeah. Um, and I always forget, was it Robin Ford or Larry Carlton? Blues Motifs was the name of the video, and he talks about exactly yeah. that: listening to everyone in the band. And the drummer, the keyboard player, and somebody might play a cool little lick, and you go, "Thank you, I'm going to run with that." And making little motifs out of it, and having that musical conversation—it's something that these guys that just play their rehearsed licks don't get. And I remember the first time I watched that video and played a show with a friend of mine who I'd been playing with for 30 years. The first time I tried that trick, I went to take a solo. He stopped playing his bass, threw his hands in the air, and just went, "Fuck! Listen to that! What was that?" And I'm like, "Oh, okay." He's heard my, me play for 30 years, and for me to take that little idea of listening and then taking a motif and, and running with yeah. it, someone who knows my playing that well, made them just go, whoa, what was that? So cool. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that you can't 
know what it feels like until you have played with musicians that can stir the pot with you at the same time and understand, okay, you just did that. Let me pick up on that. And not like to a way where like, if you had a conversation and everybody was talking at the same volume and they're all talking at the same time, that's a cacophony and you can't, no one can understand. Mm. You have to leave spaces and you have to be able to have dynamics and, and it has to be somewhat unpredictable in the flow of the thing. But the hardest thing for guitar players, and I would say for me in particular, is to leave enough space. Because when you're playing, you're typically playing a lot of eighth notes or 16th notes, and that's how you're keeping time a lot, guitar players, you know? So if you force yourself to, to stop, then you definitely have to be listening because you're not rhythmically attached to a motion that's keeping time. I mean, yes, you can tap your foot and stuff, but the thing is, uh, I think a lot of times guitar players also might have a tone that they're using that might be uncontrollable. If they stop playing, it might feed back or it might be something. So they think, oh, I got to keep playing because I don't want this to happen. But my dad is kind of like the opposite of that. He might have a tone that would feedback and he wouldn't care if it howled a little bit for a second. He would put a break in. I, there was one solo he did one time where he took these incredibly long pauses. I mean, excruciatingly long pauses. And I was like, there must be something technically wrong. Like he's trying to fix his amp or something. But he was listening for something to develop that made him want to enter the conversation. And when he did, it was so kick ass that it was like all this setup time for this, but then he would leave another space and you were just waiting to see what would happen. And it was, it was so interesting to see that he was able to leave such holes, in it, but everything worked because the rhythm section was so good that they're doing stuff that you want to hear anyway. You know, so that's the real struggle is there's lots of viable ways to play guitar and do solos. You can totally write a solo and perform it note for note, play it absolutely perfect. And it could be exactly what's needed for that song. And it might be the coolest thing ever. But if you're trying to do something that is just completely in the moment, anything can go wrong. I mean, and if it does, so, you know, so be it. But if you do something that you pull off where everybody has just played the coolest thing and you can never get that exact phrasing again, and there's all this interplay and all these things, that's the part where it just kind of lives on. And every time you listen to it, you get excited about that thing, as opposed to hearing the perfect thing, which at a certain point you go, okay, I've heard it. I know it, you just, you tune out, you know? So there's, there's a fine line there. Like I think certain players have the ability to write captivating things and perform it note for note. And it's, it's cool. But again, at a certain point, you've heard it enough that it doesn't have that inner life, mm. in it, you know? Yeah. And so trying to make a combination of both, where maybe you have a theme, but then you have some improv, stuff that happens and then maybe you go back to a theme at the end you know that's another way of doing it and that's kind of the way that i try to build the guideposts in some of the live solos 
And there's going to be nights when I will feel like everything I played is terrible, but at least I was trying. Yeah. You know, I didn't go up there and just play my, uh, you know, lick one fast, lick one slow, whatever uh, bag of tricks. But the weird thing too is that on a night when I thought I might have played great, and I go and I listen to it, it's not good. It's it's like there's something about it that's almost too predictable or too executed. Uh, and then on a night when I thought, ah, you know, I just kind of that, that one just kind of got by me tonight. I listen back and it's actually better than any of the stuff. So your own perception, even in the moment, can be totally off. And I found uh -huh. that almost every musician suffers from the same thing. Absolutely. Is you might have a, a memory of executing one thing really well and go, that's going to be good. I can't wait to hear that. Then you might listen and go, you know what? I might've played that part right, but somebody over here fucked up and this thing. So like you weren't even listening to what was happening around you. You just listened to you, yep. you know? And when you finally start being able to get that focus, you start enjoying other things about the, the music, the songwriting, the things that other people are doing. Because the less, like even in my uh, in-ear mix, my guitar is lower than most of the other instruments. And I do it on purpose so that I have to pay more attention to whatever else is happening. Uh, but if I have my guitar too loud, I'll only focus on what I'm doing. Sure. And I can't quite get into the zone of, of the other stuff. Yep, yep. So have you been wearing in-ears for a while? Yeah, probably since 2008 or nine. Yeah, and do you do you get a bit of extra ambience thrown onto your your own mix, or are you just hearing? We do. Directly? We have uh, mics that are staged left and right that are just kind of up. Uh, yep. We don't have anything from the front of house uh, way back because that that reflection is too far off. There's too much delay with that. Yep. But. Um, you want to be able to have just a touch of, you want to be able to hear an audience reaction to something because otherwise you're in a vacuum. If mm. you're playing and you don't hear anything, any reaction, you might as well be doing a puppet show. Yeah, yeah. You know? Now, I'm going to jump back just a little bit. You were talking about um, learning things note for note and not feeling right unless you absolutely nail it. Now, I'm going to say, just poking around on, on YouTube, I saw a video of you playing Eruption and that's the closest I've seen anybody plat now i actually took the time myself not going through transcriptions because i find a lot of transcriptions are wrong right. but i put it into some software and i slowed it down to 10 percent to just try and right. work it all out myself and those things you were talking about where is he playing that what position you know and just listening for the tone going okay i can hear that open string in there and just picking these little yep. things that would get past most people did you pick his brains or did you take the time to really learn that it was years of listening to it because you know there's times when I've listened where I've learned it and thought okay I think I got this and then I'll record myself playing it and go nope that's not right and then I'll listen back and be like how come I didn't hear this part before I've listened to this hundreds of times and then suddenly something will reveal itself and you go oh and it, it like but I've had that happen maybe. 10 or 12 or 15 times with that over the years where I'll, the next time I go back, something else will pop out and I think, okay, here's a, a little ism, a little thing that I need to work on. 
and I never got it to where I could play along with the track and play absolutely perfectly in time and play everything exactly with his phrasing. I got in the ballpark pretty well, but when I had to play it live, you also have the pressure of pulling it off. So I don't know, there, there's one or two versions out there where I play it decent, but to really play it as he played it, like if I was to sit down next week and say, okay, I'm gonna learn this again, I know I would hear a lot of stuff totally different. Yep. And a lot of it would come from the fact that he used such a thin pick at that time. So and is that true? He really of, used a thin pick? Yeah, yeah. Yep. I thought maybe he was just throwing that out there to, to throw people off because it doesn't no, sound like really it. Did, because when I when he came over that night, he gave me some of his picks and they were super thin. Like you do a pick slide on it and you rip it in half. You know, uh, so uh, I still have a handful of those picks from that night when he came over and gave me those picks. Yeah. But uh, the the thing about um, the that kind of pick, what you find when you're playing with a really thin pick is obviously you don't have to hit the string very hard. And he played really light strings. I mean, he played like nine through 38, uh, yeah. I think was uh, what he had back in the day. And um, so to play chords in tune, you don't have to hit the strings hard he had a great tone it didn't matter you know he didn't have to hit any harder but the thing about it is they really articulate all of like any kind of arpeggio or when you really want to dig into a high string anytime you're playing on that stuff it starts getting like tiny little serrated edges and that stuff adds like this extra harmonic or this extra thing that happens when you scrape across a string or you it sounds like he's really digging in, mm -hmm. but it's the pick has like some like beat up edges wow. that are making that just kind of come out a little bit. And even like the edge from U2 purposely damages his, his picks to get that kind of stuff to, right. to make the chimier sounds while yep. he's playing. So it's these little tiny details, stuff like that will actually make a difference in being able to execute some of the notes and get some of the feel on that stuff. Uh, and I've recently, when I have played, I have started playing with this grip just yeah. to see like what happens when I try to adapt that to some other things that I do. Because a long time ago, I tried playing that way. It just was never that comfortable. When I originally started playing, I had more of the Randy Rhodes thing where these fingers would be completely flexed and tense. And Warren Martini had that too. It was like the pinky was always out. And, but Ed was always much more uh, loose and, it, you know, that different kind of shape there. So over time, you know, my picking style changed so drastically. I learned a lot of stuff actually from Frank Gambale's videos. And I learned a lot of his sweep picking techniques. And, and um, but now lately I've been trying to use the Van Halen uh, grip and some left-hand stuff and incorporating hammer-on from nowhere with picking. And it's like becoming a different kind of sound, but I can still go back to the other stuff anytime I need it. Yep. I'm just looking at what are the different dynamic ranges? What are the different textures that I can get? And different picks work better for a different style of playing. But if I really want to get that kind of Van Halen sound, the that's, 
thin pick is really the ticket. It's funny you say about the uh, the serrated edges. I um, I was a, a Brian May impersonator for a while playing in a, in a, a touring Queen show. Yep. I have one of his picks, which is actually a coin right there. Is it going to focus? There yep. it is. Yep, yep. Uh, you cannot get his sound unless you're using a coin. And luckily, the Australian five-cent piece is as close as you can get to an old sixpence. And um, that edge... When you listen closely, yeah. you hear that chirping, the, hey, metal on metal. It got a little dunk, dunk at the start of it, but yep. just that serration, serrated edge, like like you say, it just gives it something. You people would say to me, "Are, are you breaking a hell of a lot of strings because you're using a, a coin?" I'm like, "No, never, never play them." And it kind of just it glides across the strings, but that serrated edge excites the energy in the string. It's it's an amazing. But thing. But it's also round at the same time, so mm. there's something about that that gives you uh, like even with a normal pick if you use the rounded edge it's a smoother sound than the tip of the pick mm, mm. you'll find that even anytime you even metal pick or whatever if you have the edge versus the the rounded side it does alter the contact and and what happens with uh, how it how it reacts to the string but that is I find like a really rounded edge makes it very difficult to do a lot of alternate picking or fast mm. stuff. Yep. But what it's great for is making you play with really specific phrasing where the pick actually is part of the sound in a dramatic way. So if you listen to like Dragon Attack on the game record and he's scraping across strings and then bending and he's got that... Uh, the the tone where it's the octave is coming through in that out of phase setting on his I mean Dragon Attack is probably one of the greatest rock guitar recordings of all time you know I'm gonna the, have to check the that tone, out the tone that's on there is incredible and it's 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 his heaviest sound on on anything to me uh, that Brian May sound but that that's where you really hear what the pick is really doing as he scrapes into stuff and he's he's playing some really cool rock pentatonic licks they're they're a little bit quick but they're never super fast he was never like a really super fast player but always melodic but the the tone that little bit of the articulation is a huge part of why his his sound is so memorable it's because the way he hits the strings and gets into those notes there's so much personality there versus just standard regular picking and and you know like the more you get into real standard mechanics and trying to make everything as good as you can you lose a lot of the personality of all that stuff that is the troublemaker stuff you know yeah, yeah. so there's a trade-off Dweezil, I wanted to ask you about the the Hendrix Strat that you've got, and I totally forgot about this. As I, as I told you before we went live, uh, I don't do any research. I just have a chat right. with people. And um, A, I'll be back in like one second. I, I need to show you something. Okay. You totally inspired... Uh, this guitar of mine, I remember seeing a oh, picture cool. of your, your burnt Strat. So I took yep. this black Strat and I put lighter fluid on it and I 
set it on fire and everybody comments on just the look of this and it's a it's a great sounding strat um did it sound better after you burned it what's that did it sound better did it sound better after you burned it i i can't really say i did an a b test to, to yeah. tell you if that had any effect on it but and i'm gonna dob my friend dave leslie in when he came to your house and you guys went looking he licked it nice he licked it <laughs> <laughs> I totally nice. forgot about that story, but he told me that many years ago that he was like, oh, when I was looking, I, I was like, I need to get some of that DNA. <laughs> That's pretty hilarious. Yeah. So that like sat around at your place for a long time, didn't it? Unused. So my dad played it a lot and then it disappeared for a little while and he didn't know where it was. And there used to be a staircase that was at the street level that went up to the next level where the studio was and behind that staircase one day i just decided to look back behind there and just to see what was back there and the hendrix guitar was in pieces the neck was off the pick guard was off and the body and it was just sitting there not even in a case just dust all around it i have no idea why it was there how long it had been there like that what was the purpose for leaving it there or who had done that but i found it and it was in pretty bad condition. So what I did was I, this was in 1991 uh, that I found it there. And my dad had been playing it from about 77 to about 82. And then it kind of disappeared. So in 1991, I found it behind that staircase. And I had um, a friend that was working at Fender at the time, Jay Black, who was a, a master builder. I had him build a neck that was a traditional fender neck, with a, but I made it a flipped headstock and we put a new pickguard on the guitar that would have been, it was just like a tortoiseshell style pickguard and some standard pickups. Rather than all of the electronics that were in the guitar, I kind of made it back to a stock guitar that was... Um, sort of a nod to Jimmy, but also my dad really liked at that point, just straight single coil pickups in a Strat. So I just made it almost a stock guitar and I gave it to him on his birthday as a surprise. But at that time he was so ill, he couldn't play it. He, he couldn't enjoy it. So he said, you know, that's so cool that you did this, but why don't you have the guitar? You know? And so that's, how it ended up becoming my guitar but um i've since replicated the way it was when he was on the cover of guitar player magazine in 1977 which had a, a rosewood neck on it uh, and it had this really weird um it seemed like it was like a piece of a pick guard that was cut out almost in a shark fin shape oh yeah that was underneath the tuning peg i mean underneath the string tree um but then he had this uh metal it looked like it was a mirror pickguard but it was really a, a silver shiny metal pickguard and it had all these knobs for extra electronics and switches and things so i recreated the guitar to look exactly as it was on that um magazine cover and that's the way uh, i left it but there's been various different ways i've had it over the years wow and does was it a good sounding guitar it's an incredible sounding guitar. Yeah. It's, it, it definitely has a personality all of its own. I mean, the, the only thing that was 
left of the Hendrix era is the body itself. Yep. But what's cool is when you look at it, you can see that there were different strap lock holes or strap, you know, to put this, because uh, he had to flip the guitar upside down, he had to put a new um, pin to put the strap on so he could play it the way. So when you see that little detail on there, that's one of those things. Like if you're a guitar player, you're like, that is the, you know, the hair on the arms kind of thing. Yeah. Cause it's, you're like, Oh, this is so cool that this, you know, at some point he burned the guitar. It was probably for, to my knowledge, it was burned in London at the Astoria. Um, and then it was brought over to the U S in within the rest of his stuff because, uh, they were playing a show at the Miami pop festival. My dad played at the same, uh, festival. And that's when my dad got the guitar. Uh, it was just kind of like, Hey, Jimmy burned this guitar. You want it? And it was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Little piece of history right there, huh? Yeah. Awesome. Now, um, you're one of the first guys I knew of out there um, that ditched the tube amps and went with the Axe Effects. Uh, how long yeah. how, you still Axe Effectsing? When I play live shows, I have been using the Axe Effects for pretty much everything. Uh, and it's different versions. So there's uh, the Axe Effects rack unit, and then there's also different like floor units where it's all everything built in. The unit has the the pedals and the uh, and the uh, volume pedal and everything. So um, ultimately, the switch wasn't a hard switch for me because I had built a rig prior to that that. I was using multiple amps and two refrigerator sized racks filled with stuff to try to recreate all the different eras of my dad's music. And, you know, considering that his own guitar rig in 1976, he built this thing, which he spent $35,000 in 1976 money, which was like $300,000 in you know, modern money to build a guitar rig. And he had all these custom things made that had never been made before, including a switcher where you could have presets and, you know, lighted things and you could name the thing and you can see what it was and all the pedals, there was like a volume pedal and a wah pedal built into this switching system. And, but it, it had, you know, things like an even tied nine ten harmonizer. It had two, um, Dyna flangers in it. It had uh, Marshall um, time modulator in it. And it had all of these different studio effects, but he was playing through three different amps and two DIs. So it was split into five channels. And this was this crazy setup that he had, but it produced the most amazing three-dimensional sounds. Wow. And he could blend these different things. Now, in a modern situation, you have a lot of things you have to do to make that happen. Multiple amps, multiple cabinets, all this gear, over 200 cables to connect. And that stuff was being carted around. And almost every night, something wouldn't work. Yeah. Because it had rattled around in the truck, something had come loose. or So I was constantly having problems with the rig. But with the axe effects, most of the effects that were in that rig, I could easily recreate just in terms of whether it's 
compression, EQ, reverb, delays, all that kind of stuff. You can have that be whatever you want. The amp tones, I was able to get very specific with, and I could add in the DI, and I could blend these, and I could have different presets that would be set up for different guitars. So I wouldn't have to worry if I change guitar from an SG to a Strat that now the gain structure is all wrong. You know, I would I would have this flexibility to have it set for specific guitars, for specific songs. Cool. And then I'd have the ability to map this stuff out and go ahead and make set lists. And if I wanted to move songs around, I could move these sounds and I could have all this flexibility that I could never have with the other version. And I didn't really have a trade-off in terms of the audio at the end of the day, if you listen to the recordings or the tapes of, of any of the stuff, uh, there were much more inconsistencies with the analog rig than there was with the digital rig. Yeah, right. But I went, you know, really kind of over the top with my programming and all of the things. I didn't just use whatever the stock presets were. So I was able to take a very deep dive on that unit and have done ever since. So I really love the sound of it and the things that I can do with it. But uh, as I'm building a studio at home, I also now have the ability to use the amps that I've always loved. And I have a switching system that will help me, you know, go from one to another, change speaker cabinets, and you can have instant changes. So when you're recording, you can have whatever. You can use the XFX or you can use amps or you could use both. Cool. Uh, so... I have really the, the the most flexibility I've ever had, or I will have in the coming weeks when the studio finally starts to come online. But it's um, it's it's great. I mean, I love amplifiers, but when you talk about having to recreate the sounds of Frank Zappa, the Axe Effects is way easier to use on a consistent basis. If I was only having to get certain sounds, like a an ACDC kind of sound. I might be much happier just plugging straight into an amp, you know, uh, but it just really depends. And I, I love the technology side of it, but having the best of both worlds in the recording studio is going to be where I'll have the most fun over the next few years. Cool. Well, I've been keeping one eye on the on the chat room there, and um, there was a question there from PAL Guitars asking, do you miss tube amps? I think you just uh, answered that uh, very well, on one of the way. things I'm doing with the podcast is at a certain point, there's an episode where we're going to do a, a real strong scientific breakdown of the so-called brown sound. Now, it's not to my version of doing this is I want to be able to make this sound, but it doesn't mean that you have to use only the gear that Eddie Van Halen used. Because there are different ways to make that sound. I can make a sound in the in the fractal that can sound almost identical to any of the Van Halen records and not use a single amp. You could A, B it, and you'd be hard-pressed to tell what's what. Now, that being said, there's also things you could do with other styles of amplifiers and different pedals and different things, or EQ, or different speakers, and you can get the sound. So my goal is to make a really fun um, episode where we really explore all the different ways you can get some of these different sounds. And 
that's where we're going to show off certain amps. There's a couple of amps that I have that really just out of the box nail the sound. Yep. There's one, a guy uh, just recently made, a guy named Brian Karstens. He makes an amp called the Grace amp, which actually is Billy Corgan's signature amp. Okay. And you yep. wouldn't think that it would be what it is. You can get all these Van Halen sounds uh, with this thing. It's an incredible amp and it cleans up brilliantly. Uh, but Billy Corgan doesn't have a sound that sounds like Van Halen at no, all. Not at all. Not at all. But it's his signature amp, yet you can get all these Van Halen sounds straight out of the gate with this thing. Yeah. Uh, but I have a couple of amps that uh, John Sir made that are instant. It's already, you know, Van Halen 1, Van Halen 2, straight out of the box. Don't have to do anything to it. Yep. Uh, so, but the one cabinet that I have that Brian Carson's made also has two JBL style speakers on the top and two Celestians on the bottom, which is what Ed used on the first album. He had two different kind of speakers in his one main cabinet. Okay. And that helps a lot to create the sizzle and the girth and all that stuff. So the cabinet makes a big difference with all the amps I just mentioned. Uh-huh. Cool. You know, I, I did that recently with a couple of Marshall boxes I had here, uh, where one was a the older style 1960A, and then the, there was another one which had um, 1960AV, I think they call it, with vintage 30s. And I did a bit of a, well, let's put two of each in each cabinet. And just like you said, I get the, the sizzle from the the um, the vintage 30s, and then the others, what are they, H75s, whatever they're called. Um yeah, that gets the girth in there, and it's a great combination. So, yeah, um, yeah, mixing and matching. Um, now, you mentioned that you're you've got a studio you're building at home, um, yep. and that's almost up and going. Um, I'm struggling to remember the name of your dad's studio. Something oh, utility, utility muffin. muffin research kitchen. <laughs> that's it. Yes, the utility muffin research kitchen, which now lady lady gaga owns the house and has uh, has that studio i don't know if she's keeping that name she might call it something different at this point but okay okay so i was going to ask whether you you still had that house or not but but gaga's nope. in there now is it true again i think i'm trying to recall dave leslie telling me many years ago that the access into that was like a submarine there was one area where you could access the studio so from the kitchen level you could walk out a side door and the the structure that was attached to that part of the house was this giant shell which had the studio in it which had a very high ceiling and on top of the studio we actually had a play deck which had a basketball court and we would ride our bikes up there when we were kids um but so the the whole structure was a really tall structure that was built into the back of this um basically a mountain because the the house next to us had a driveway a very steep driveway so they excavated all this ground at uh, at street level and you when you got all the way back to the excavated part it was up maybe 55 60 feet up wow. uh, so it was a big wedge that they had scooped out of this mountain and built this studio structure in so the the top where the the kitchen door was and you walked out onto this little porch there was a submarine door like a hatch door 
that had all these levers that you had to undo and then you could pull it open and you could go in, there was a little office there and then you could walk down the stairs into the tracking room of the studio. So it was a, a unique and oddball thing. But if you were in the kitchen and you wanted a quick way to get right back into the studio, you had to go through the submarine door and you kind of had to crouch down and, and get in there. That is so cool. That is so cool. And I imagine that'd be pretty soundproof too, huh? Oh, that whole structure was totally soundproof. Yeah. 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 Uh, Dweezil, I want to ask you about your podcast, but before I do that, I just want to let the folks in the chat room, um, I just want to say to them, if you have any questions for Dweezil, I know there's a couple already, uh, drop them now and I can come back to those and, and ask you specifically from some of the viewers. But uh, yeah. while people are doing that, I just wanted to ask you about your Running with the Dweezil podcast. Yeah, it's a podcast that is about Van Halen, but it's a very, it's an homage in many ways because what I learned from his music and from being friends with him and seeing him play and all that stuff, there's a lot of stories that I can relate to people, but there's so many guitar players who've had their own brushes with Edward Van Halen, whether it's just with his music or having met him you know, or played with him or, or done different things where their paths have crossed. So the, the stories that you'll hear on Running With The Dweezil are really in-depth stories that all also relate to each album and going song by song and talking about the song and breaking it down and the parts that had the biggest impact for each of the guitar players who are sharing their stories. So we have got it sectioned out in there's you can buy the podcast in bundles so the early years is the classic van halen the first six albums and there's a few bonus episodes in that series as well overall there's 30 episodes total and we're still in production we haven't done all 30 episodes yet but the first season which is called the early years that's done next week is the premiere of right here right now which is the sammy hagar era and then the van halen 3 with gary sharon period which will also have some bonus episodes that go with that so that uh season starts next week but we also have a bundle that's called the 5150 bundle which gives you access to both both seasons so you you have your choice of what your interest level is you can buy an independent season just the early years or just right here, right now, or you could buy the 5150 bundle, which gives you every single episode plus access to special um, online chats and and other features. But the the main thing is you could also, if you wanted to, you could buy just an episode at a time or just the ones that you like, and they're $2.99 for each episode, you know? So it just depends if you like a certain guest or you want to check out Nuno Betancourt or Steve Vai or Billy Corgan or whoever it is that you want to check out, you can go a la carte and buy individual episodes. Or you can save money and buy the whole thing and get all the episodes with the 5150 bundle, which is $51.50. And uh, uh, we also are donating to uh, Edward Van Halen's favorite charities, which one is... Uh, Mr. Holland's Opus, which donates instruments to schools and kids that don't have access to instruments. And then the other one uh, was also Van Halen used to uh, do uh, food drives on some of their tours. So we 
um, are donating to uh, uh, Feeding America. So it's, it's a lot of work that goes into putting these things together. It's highly personalized. There's a lot of post-production elements with how the music gets edited and incorporated. So it's little audio documentaries, little audio movies that bring this stuff to life. It's not just, let's have a chat. This is how the chat went. And there, there you go. Yep. You know, there's more to these episodes. Um, so it's a, it's a fun thing We're we're doing some more. Uh, the next uh, episode is going to be with Mark Letiri, who's from Snarky Puppy. And we're talking about the 5150 album. And then, uh, after that is James Valentine from Maroon 5, and we talk about the OU812 record. And then Joe Satriani talks about the Four Unlawful Carnal Knowledge record. So it's the first few weeks of that one are, are filled with a lot of really cool information and, and fun stories. Well, I think I'm going to have to, um, to get that, right, and, and check it out. That's very appealing. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, there's a guy a- that's from Australia that um, he has – been somebody what we also have is a community of people that get together and talk about all the stuff it's all on dweezilzappa.com on my website that's where you find the the podcast but simon hosford uh who is an australian player who probably most of your people uh who listen know simon's playing uh but he he did a, a really great van halen tribute show uh where they played the entire first album song by song and, they, and he played the stuff pretty much note for note, did a really great job. And, and he's been part of the community. And we have like, um, you know, community members who've made their own video testimonials talking about how much this podcast means to them and how much they enjoy it and how thankful they are that it exists in the way that it does because it's brought people together to be able to hear the music with different perspectives, things they never thought they'd hear about. Uh, you know, from personal stories or, or, or just the details about recording. I've had a chance to talk to Don Landy and ask him questions about, you know, the early albums and what did he do when he recorded this? And, you know, I'm able to share some things uh, that are mysterious things that we didn't know about, you know, so yeah. it's, it's yeah. fun to, to bring this stuff out there for people. That's awesome. You know, like the real behind the people who knew him and were there, uh, not just speculating, but people that actually knew, you know, that that's great. Yeah. Uh, I'm just looking at the comments here, and there is one from Damon Michael. Dweezil, what is your favorite Randy Rhodes solo, jumping from EVH to Randy Rhodes? Okay, well, there's a lot of them, but, um, you know, obviously he's had some real standout ones and some of the more well-known songs like Flying High Again or Diary of a Madman where he's got some some pretty cool phrases that he puts in there but you know crazy train all those ones are great but the stuff that he did uh and obviously mr crowley one of his one of his most well-known but he really composed a lot of those solos and would triple track the stuff so the stuff that sounds like it wasn't as composed kind of over time has really stood out to me like the sato solo is a one that sounds like he just kind of went for it uh and I love that one, um, but I also love the end solo to the song Tonight, the one that fades out. That one's killer. But there's one track, uh, and it was on a picture disc that I had, and I'm spacing on the name because it's an unreleased song um, that 
never came out on any album. It just was, you can find it, but I don't remember the name of it right now. Somebody probably already knows what I'm talking about, but that solo is for sure just an improvised solo because it's a live take of this, this track. And that one's really good too. But you know, I mean, I love all of his textures and things that, that he did songwriting wise, the way his counterpoint and the little pieces, the way he would put stuff together was a big influence on me. In a way it reminded me of my dad's music just because of orchestration and the way that he fit all these parts together, but only just guitar. My dad's music had a lot of different instruments and they all fit together, but there's so many little bits and pieces that Randy put into his playing that I love. And I learned a lot just about arranging and orchestration from listening to those records. Cool, cool. I got another question here from RJ Ronquillo. I think I'm saying that right, RJ. RJ is a great guitar player from Nashville, great YouTuber. Um, does Dweezil still have that Madonna guitar? I do, I do yes. Yeah? yeah, I have it. Uh, it hasn't been played in a very long time. So I was thinking about once my studio is kind of up and running, I'll, I'll do a little studio tour and, and a playthrough of some of the guitars that are uh, just kind of haven't been out of their cases in a while. Cool. Uh, now there's another, there's a super chat here from Planet Solanke. Thank you for that, Planet Solanke. Um, I don't quite understand the question, but it says, do I remember correctly, Dweezil and Taylor Dane tell me something good on his game show? Okay, so I had sense? a show. I had a show that was on the USA Network called Happy Hour, and it was a um, show where you had female celebrities and male celebrities, and they would have to play sort of party games, and they had to all do some karaoke singing. And it was a really fun show. It was kind of ahead of its time. But Taylor Dane came and sang on that. I mean, we had Shaka Khan on there. We had different people. Um, it was actors and musicians, and there was a whole team of dancers. The Pussycat Dolls were the dancers. Um, and uh, so it was a fun show, but I don't know anything beyond what that person's referencing. But yes, it happened. <laughs> cool, cool. Now, um, we were talking about Ed before, and um, I was just thinking about how lucky you were to have him as a bit of a mentor hanging around when you were, when you were a young fella. Um, do you know Wolfgang? I don't know him well. I met him a few times when he was much younger. I'd love to have him as a guest on the podcast at some point, you know, when he has a moment to uh, think about doing it. But, um, but you know, he, I think, is doing an incredible job in the position that he's in because with modern social media, you have all these armchair critics and all these people that do things that, you know, if they were face to face with you, they wouldn't have the ability to be as off putting and sometimes just flat out cruel that people are to some people, you know, online. Yep. Uh, so there's things that uh, have happened over time where people have said things that were not the nicest stuff. Uh, and it happens to anybody who's a public figure. But um, I think that Wolfgang has learned how to, you know, have the inner strength to to do what he wants to do, the way that he wants to do it, 
He has the support from the people that he really knows and trusts and, and cares about. And he's able to just say, you know what, I'm just doing what I do. If you don't like it, you don't have to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and not have it be so, uh, uh, have somebody have the, the power to affect him emotionally. Cause there's been people that have said things that again, were not the nicest stuff. I have stuff said about me all the time too, but being in a similar position of having a, a well-known musician as a father and a great guitar player, and then having to be pitted against them as, Oh, which one's better or this, that, or the other, you know, you're, you're in a no win situation. So to me, I never cared about it when it was stuff related to me because, you know, I would just say, whatever I do, I'm just going to let the music speak for itself because people are going to make up their own minds and say whatever they're going to say. And I think, you know, what he's done, the music he's created and, and his ability is, is showing it, the music is speaking for itself and he's got a, a good sense of humor and he's doing a great job with how he's presenting that stuff. And I know that at a certain point down the road, uh, he'll get around to doing something amazing with his father's catalog, whatever he chooses to do. And whether it's with Alex and, and the other guys or, or whatever, you know, they'll, they'll do something that Van Halen fans are sure to love, but I'm sure he's not in a rush to have to do that because it's emotionally difficult. You know, I think he surprised a lot of people when he did uh, release uh, the, the first song, The, the Distance, uh, yeah. and then everything since then. I myself was of the mindset of, oh, yeah, Eddie's been saying how talented his son is. Everyone's kids talented, you know. Yeah. And when I heard it, I was like, holy crap, this guy can sing, he can play, he can write a good song. Um, yeah. And um, I, I just saw it announced that he's going to be opening for Guns N' Roses on, on the big tour that they're, yeah, they're doing, planning. Tour. Um, yeah. So, yeah, hats off to the guy. He can actually really play and is super talented. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the, the crazy thing is there's a video that I'm sure many people have seen where he plays the finger-tapping part of Eruption, and nobody has ever played it as close to Ed as Wolfgang, just in terms of, like, the actual – DNA phrasing that the, the just the way that it, he moves through it, it just sounds just like his dad. Wow, wow. Uh, there's a question here from Jamie F. Um, he's giving you a bit of a shout out first, but then he says, uh, "Your upbringing, career, and connections are epic. Any chance we may see an autobiography at some stage would be an amazing read." Uh, you know, the thing is. It's funny, only in the last um, couple years have I been much of an autobiography reader. I, I really never got into it too much, but during COVID, uh, I pretty much started reading a lot of them. And I never thought about doing one of my own because I'm like, who wants to hear that? You know, like I'm not, like my dad was a perfect example. Somebody uh, towards the end of his life said, How would you like to be remembered? And he said, I wouldn't. So, <laughs> really? You know, but he had made a book before he made the real Frank Zappa book, which is an incredible book, but it's not specifically an autobiography, but it's, it's a really fun read and it's, there's a lot of cool stuff in it. But for me, I never really thought about it, uh, for, for a book, but lately a lot of people have been saying, Hey, you got some good stories. You should probably think about it. So maybe, 
but it's never been like, you know, to me, it's kind of like what my dad said, like, do you want to be remembered? He said, I wouldn't, but he was saying that people who want to be remembered are people like Ronald Reagan and uh, Richard Nixon and, and stuff like that, where you want to have the library or you want to have the thing, or you want to be like, well, this is the mark I made. It's like, isn't just doing what you do good enough? Like it doesn't, you know, so I, uh, I just have never thought about it in those terms, but if there's some kind of an interest, then, uh, then maybe I'll, I'll think about it. Cause you know, I just, to me, it's great memories and it's, it's things, but it's not like I go, Oh, Hey, people are going to love this. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's been, it's just the way, you know, life growing up with a dad that is Frank Zappa. I'm sure yeah. things that just seem like yeah, everyday occurrences to you, to other people would just be oh, no way, you know? Well, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, not everything was always like some kind of amazing jaw dropping experience, but I've had a few where it's like, it's not lost on me that I got to do cool things with, uh, some cool musicians and, and have opportunities to do, you know, fun and interesting things in various different versions of entertainment. Uh, but, um, yeah, I- I'll think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Just from my opening question to you of, um, you know, what started the love affair with, with the electric guitar and then you've launched into having Steve Vai and Eddie Van Halen, uh, and, and your father showing you the ropes, you know, to most people, I, I did do recall somebody asking me on my Facebook page when I announced that you were going to be coming on, um, asking that question of, did you ever get to sit down with Steve I and Frank uh, and play some guitar? And you've taken that yeah. one step further with your opening um, re- remarks there about having EVH there as well. So Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because uh, over the years, I've played with a lot of the most influential players that had the biggest influence on me. And so with, when it comes to Van Halen, one of the most interesting things that I had was the real role reversal where I used to go to his shows and go visit him backstage and be so excited just to have seen the show and all this stuff. And, uh, but I did a show where I opened for Jeff Beck and it was in 2010 and we played at a place called the Nokia center in Los Angeles. And Edward came to my show. He came to the sound check and he stuck around for the show. And then, you know, we talked before the show and after the show, but the thing that was different there was when we were backstage, he was like, Hey, how are you playing that part? That part looks crazy on the guitar. And I'm showing him, the, the how I'm playing St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast, which is really impossibly difficult to play on the guitar. And then he's looking at it going, there's no way that I can play that. You know, so it was like the total role reversal kind of thing in that moment. And it was just like a mind blowing thing because it's like Jedi mind trick or something, you know, it's yeah. like, well, you know, like yeah. it's just totally, you know, it flip flopped for that moment, you know, and it was uh, it was a really fun experience to have that uh, because I would have never have thought that something like that would happen. But again, I've got a, a chance to play with a lot of different players. Like I've done this tour a few times where we play the music of Jimi Hendrix, and it's put on by the Hendrix family uh, called the Experience Hendrix Tour. 
And pretty much every tour that I've done, Eric Johnson has also been on. And we always end up playing songs together. And so Eric was a big hero of mine and still I love his playing. But it was this kind of thing of like, we have different styles and we play together, but we, in that experience, that's a whole other thing of like, you know, I can remember being a kid hearing his stuff and going, I could never do what he's doing. But now here I am having to like play off of him and do things. And, but it's that kind of fun stuff where uh, as a guitar player, being put into these situations where you are going to do something that you might be terrified to do, but you are, you're doing it anyway. You know, it's like, well, here I go. (laughs) So even like Chick Corea, Chick Corea, we played, we did a tour where we played, um, open for Return of Forever. In every show, pretty much every show, he would stand on the side of the stage and then he would look over at me and he'd be like this, meaning, can I come out and play with you? And I was, we would bring him out and he would come out and play on a song called King Kong. And I would have to trade with him. Now, I don't have a jazz background at all. And here's a guy that can play anything, whatever off the top of his head. And every night it's going to be different. He's going to do all these amazing things. So I would hear stuff that he would do and I would just have a go at it, you know, just try to play stuff that I would not normally play. And occasionally there would be some pretty cool stuff that would happen. But I was never like a guy that could just be like, oh, I'm going to go toe to toe with Chick Corea. But here it is, you know, I'm I'm put in that position. Uh, And it was it was. Uh, super fun every time because it's not a competition. It's just like, what's going to happen? Yeah. And a few times he was using a keyboard that was an analog keyboard and it would go out of tune. And so he, he'd start playing stuff. And I'm like, wow, he's really going out, you know, out of space. Like, I don't know what scales these are. And then he'd come back to play the melody and his, uh, his keyboard was completely out of tune. So we'd have to get him to stop playing the melody because it was, you know, a cacophony. But <laughs> Those kind of things were just experiences that I look back and go, wow, that was just such a fun thing. But if you told me, hey, go play with Chick Corea, I'm like, I'm not doing that, you know? But he Sometimes you just got to say us. yes. You just say yes yeah. and work it out as you go, huh? Yeah, but, you know, he, he was wanting to come up. So I'm like, all right, you know, but then I'm stuck. Now I have to play with him, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm the same boat, man. I can't play jazz. I can't play country, but... Hey, I'm, I'm happy to be rock and roll guitar player. Um, yeah, now, that's, that's, that's the My friend stuff. Bernie is asking, um, are you still playing Optima slash Maxima strings like Frank? Well, I don't have any sets of those currently. I loved them when my dad had them on the guitars. And I remember loving changing the strings, you know, because uh, they were gold. But they had these other ones too that were, um, they had a black coating on them for just the low strings. And um, I like those as well. That was the second part uh, but, of Bernie's question, actually, was he he just said that uh, Frank played gold and black. Yep. Yep. So Bernie knows I his love, strings. I love those. Uh, it was uh, it was cool to uh, to play on those sets of strings. I guess they're still out there. I, I haven't tried getting any of them uh, for a while, but I guess it would be fun to go down memory lane and get, get a few sets. They are still out there. Uh, Bernie that just asked the question, is the Australian distributor of them? Oh. He'll send you some. I would love it. 
Okay, I'll, I'll chat to you when we go off air and I'll, I'll, I'll line that up for you. Um, Jamie F., sorry you may have touched on this as I came in late, but are you still working on what the hell was I thinking and any ETA on a release date? Yes, I'm still working on it. The studio is going to be the catalyst to help me finish that. But the, the thing that's crazy about that is just in a nutshell, it started on analog tape. There were some problems with the tape reels because we were on the big reels. Uh, and the, the motor that runs the, the machine, when you got to the end of those reels, it would speed up just a little bit. So anything that's in the last maybe three minutes of that, those reels, you can't do an overdub to because the pitch is changing gradually over time. And so you'd have to, like the drums you can kind of get away with, you're not really hearing the change of pitch so drastically, but if you try to play guitar or play bass to anything and try to do an overdub, it's always going out of tune. So certain stuff, you either have to leave it exactly as it is, or you have to re-record some of those bits. Um, but then, so that being said, that got transferred to digital tape machines. And then the digital tape machines had dropouts and erased certain sections or damaged certain sections. So then I went from that to DA88, which was in the early 90s. And I did a lot of work on those at that time. And then I, over a period of time said, I got to get these into a computer. So about five years ago, a lot of the stuff went into the computer. But when they went into the computer, I had to put all that stuff in storage while we then started building this place. So it's only now that I'm trying to get some of that stuff out of storage off of hard drives to see if I can even fire them up because they might not even play. Man. So. That's so the thing this with is like it's been in production since maybe 1990, 89, 90, or, or somewhere is when I started uh, working on the whole idea of what the hell was I thinking. So the ultimate goal will be to get it all into a workstation so I can start putting it together. But there's a lot of great players now that are current modern players that I'd like to get on it. So there's stuff that I'll probably take out from the original and add new stuff and make space for people. Because what this thing is, it's an audio movie and it from moment to moment stylistically changes. And then it also changes in terms of the atmosphere, the, the room that it's in or all the textures you're going to hear it change as if you were turning a radio dial and tuning in a different station every so often. But all these different guitar players start falling out of the speakers. So you'll hear Angus and Malcolm Young playing on this and they've never played on anything but ACDC. Wow. Uh, you'll hear, you'll hear uh, Eric Johnson, Brian May, Edward Van Halen, Steve Vai, Steve Morse, Brian Setzer, uh, Steve Lukather, Warren Demartini, Blue Saracino, Joe Walsh, all these different guys, Robin Ford, all these different guys that I've recorded over the years, but there's a, a, a whole bunch of other people I want to put on there. I'd love to get Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, David Gilmore, Pete Townsend, all these guys. But I, what it, it's all designed around either putting someone exactly in their wheelhouse or putting them in a totally different position to make them play on something you'd never hear them play on. 
You know, so like I have Ingve Malmsteen playing on a super slow blues. Wow. You know, like a slow tempo blues. And he's playing like a billion notes on it. It's it's great, but he plays like right after Angus. And, and this is your own compositions? Yeah, so it's my own music, but all these guest players on it, and it's just drastically changed. And the whole idea is guitar, bass, and drums, and make guitar do stuff you've never heard it do before. So there's no synthesizers. There's It's just all guitar, playing guitar, with you know EQing and, and other stuff to make it sound different at times. I do a thing like bagpipes and all kinds of stuff, you know, where you you hear the guitar just taking on all these different roles. Um, but it's it's a cool thing. I'll finish it one day, but I got to get it working. I'm glad you took the time to explain what it was because I was going to ask that. It was just like, oh, forgive me, but I'm not too sure what, what that is that, that, yeah. that he's asking about. How awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you something that just popped into my mind, uh, just talking about things that you probably took for granted, but to other people would just be mind-blowing. Um, I heard a story about Alice Cooper coming to uh, play for your dad and getting the AM and PM mixed up and starting to blast things at 7, 7 a.m. at your house rather than 7 p.m., which is what he was expecting. Were you around then? See, I don't know anything about that. That would have been really early, like 1970-something, you know, like early 70s. And, you know, I was born in 1969, so it would have been a little before my time okay. to, to know what happened for stuff like that. Sure, sure. So it's not, not a memory that, um, that that springs to mind. Dweezil, you said about you haven't played much guitar during the pandemic right. and you, you know, is having extended breaks something that you do often? Because I have heard Eddie Van Halen say that when he comes off tour, he'll go a couple of years and not play. And I know I've had issues with tendonitis myself over years and it's like, well, I just haven't played in six months. And then you go to pick it up and you're just so rusty and you think, Ugh. but it comes back in no time, usually better than you were before. Is that something you do yeah. quite regularly? I have done a lot of times, and even my dad did. He never played guitar unless he was going on tour. At a certain point, after like maybe 1976, he just never would play guitar at all unless he was going on tour. He was writing music, sitting at the piano, writing notation. Um, and for me, uh, it's just been a balance situation because with the amount of touring that I was doing, when I was home, I wanted to spend time with my wife and kids. I didn't want to be doing the music stuff. And so that was the, the real struggle. And, and it wasn't hard for me to put the guitar down. But when I did pick it up, what I liked about taking the break was that I would see things differently and I would try things. And I could actually recognize, you know what? I've never played this before. This, I've never actually done this. You know? and, and that's where... Uh, some of the best new ideas came from. And it's much easier to recognize those things after a long break. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm just going to put the call out to people if they have any final questions before I round things up with you, mate. Um, but um, just talking gear, are you still axe-affecting or have you tried other Modelers, because there's a, there's a whole plethora of them out there now. Is you? Well, I've tried uh, all the stuff that's out there, and everything's good. You know, I just I know how to use the fractal, so I stick with that. Um, but there's great stuff. That neural DSP stuff is good, and um, uh, you know, the Kemper can do some cool things. But I I like 
the technology involved in the fractal and as far as being able to um, really dive deep in the effects side of it, there's nothing better than the fractal. So you can, if you know what you're doing, you can make anything. And have you got XFX3 now? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I've heard that the, the latest Cygnus um, firmware update has made things um, another level again. It always happens that way. And that's a great thing that they constantly are coming up with new ways to do it uh, and embellish the things that are there and open things up and give you chances to do things. What's cool is that you can do stuff that you really couldn't do in the straight up analog world. And it's just an easier way to, you know, find your way, especially if you're blending clean sounds and dirty sounds and, and changing the dynamics of stuff. Like I like to work on stuff. My dad used to really like blending direct sounds with amp sounds because there was an immediacy of the attack of the direct sound that you didn't get with the amplifier sound. But let's say he wanted a fuzz tone on one side and he wanted uh, less gain on this side, but something that was had more transient information. And then you also had the blend of the, the really compressed clean sound. That'd be tucked under, but it gives you sort of this dimension, like uh, it gives you like the, you can almost hear all the way around the low strings, especially, especially on a Strat. You know, you get this definition that's there. Then you get the fuzz tone, which has its kind of own envelope of how the note will sustain. And the other transient side, which you might have less gain, but let's say it's more of like a, almost a Pete Townsend style, you know, like you hit it hard and it's going to really bark at you. Now, those sounds, making them all work together as one sound ends up sounding like two guitars playing at once, but you have the ability to have this thing where like you start something and it moves across the speakers and it kind of breathes in this way. And that's the kind of really cool stuff that my dad was doing with all the different amps and the, the um, direct boxes. But I love to be able to recreate that scenario with the Axe FX and being able to do it now with the Axe FX3, I can do just use one Axe FX3 and do what I used to have to do with two Axe FX2s. So I used to use two machines and pretty much treat one side, just the left side with one machine and just the right side with the other machine. So uh, because I was running out of DSP with a lot of the things that I was doing with like building these Dynaflanger style effects and other things. Uh, but now the Axe FX3 is so powerful that you can do it all and still have some room left over in just one unit. Wow. Yeah, and it I'll, keeps things in phase even better. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I haven't really tried the running two different rigs uh, um, in parallel, yeah, you're running those. Maybe I should look into that. It, looks, it sounds like a, a no-brainer, really, in being able to bring that clarity to a sound that yeah, might not really have it. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, the thing is, what is interesting when you are just thinking of frequency ranges and the amount of real estate in the speakers, and when you talk about like the personality of a sound, a lot of people, if they want to make a stereo sound, they think 
has to be the same sound on both sides, same EQ, same everything. Like, oh yeah, you know, why would you? I want it to be as drastically different as possible, texturally. Uh, I want to be able to find a way to to play notes that, depending on how I hit it, it's going to bloom a different way. And that's the kind of stuff that, especially when I'm playing in in-ears, I can hear that that interplay thing, and it just feels like it's it's like a living, breathing organism. It's not just, oh, I'm playing, you know, and, and you're just hearing a, a standard sound out of these things. So it really puts me in a different headspace when I can feel that stuff move around as I play through it. Cool. Cool. Uh, there is a couple more questions there. And one was, what do you see as being, sorry, I'll start again. What does Dweezil see as his biggest similarities and differences to his dad's approach? Uh, I mean, as far as guitar playing, I don't think there's a guitar player that's even close to my dad in terms of approach of the instrument, but in his musical ideas were informed by his intellect and knowledge of music. He, he had enough technique on the guitar to be able to pull off the idea harmonically and rhythmically that he was going for, but he wasn't a technician and he had this really weird idiosyncratic style of playing. So he actually had this weird motion that was very plucky and most of it was upstrokes. Wow. So he would do a lot of upstroke stuff and I always said it was like a chicken poking or pecking at seeds and it was fighting with the spider. So the chicken versus the spider. Wow. Because even his left hand didn't look like what you would normally see being done on the guitar, the way he would finger things and what he would go for. So uh, seeing that and then being more of a technical player on my side, learning Van Halen or Randy Rhodes or, or, you know, at a later date, the Frank and Bali style of stuff where it's about economy of motion and precision and all this stuff. The best, most memorable players have a certain element of stuff that's in their playing that is sloppy. And if you took it out, the personality would go away. So if you took Jimi Hendrix and you put him on a grid and you perfected all of everything that he did, he would not be anywhere near as fun to listen to. Same for Jimmy Page and certainly of my dad. So the things, if he was going for stuff, he would go for things that were beyond his ability technically. Yeah. But it was like, well, I'm just going for it. And if I land on my feet, great. Otherwise, you know, I got a few more minutes here and I can just do the next thing. You know, he wasn't concerned about like being a technical gymnast or an acrobat and sticking the landing. He was just like, let me try to, just make some music that spontaneously compose. So it took me years to be able to get to that place, to be able to spontaneously compose or improvise in context to the music. So that's the thing that I think is more similar now is that I have that approach and I have enough language and vocabulary to, to enter that arena in that way. But prior to that, I would have been more closer to just a stock rock guitar player who's got some licks and you kind of stick to your guns yeah. you know i'm less interested in that now and i'm interested in more textures and and just like the variety of the the articulations and the phrasing 
that you can do with the guitar. So as I get more interested in that and my own music uh, and what I can do with that, I'm sure there will be some new things that will set what I do apart from what I have done or what my dad did. But, you know, I feel like I'm kind of in a place where things are similar, but, but I still do it my own way. Yeah. It's such an expressive instrument, isn't it? That just that the yeah. way you touch that piece of string um, and, you know, some people might just do like a quarter note of a bend at the end of something and it just gives yeah. it such a signature, doesn't it? Where somebody just plays it straight and you're like, no, that's, that's not right. And yeah, well, I, I love being a guitar that, player. Love being yeah, a guitar player. Yeah, the funny thing that I realized about my dad's playing, which uh, is unusual, is a lot of times he does no vibrato. He'll just play notes and have no vibrato and not even pull them, uh, you know, and that it just depends on the context because uh, he, when he does use vibrato, it's really there for a point, you know? And so it's interesting when you think about those kind of things and being able to, to think about just using it when you need to make more of a statement as opposed to like every note you're vibratoing. Now, a great example of that is I hear people playing Steve Vai's For the Love of God, his signature yeah. tune. And the first pass through the verse is just like that. Deadpan, no vibrato, just the notes. Doo, 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 doo. And then when he comes through, the next time he plays it, adds a bit. And then by the third time, he's just over the top with the bends and everything. And it's, it's those little nuances, yeah. isn't it? That's the part that as over time, the more you play, I notice me and my friends that are similar who have been playing guitar for for years, that's the stuff that stands out where you go, that's what I'm so interested in now. It's like, who are the players that had that from the beginning and focused on that? Yeah. You know, the, the David Gilmore's or, you know, like even Pete Townsend with, the, the the sheer violence in the way that he played that made it sound like what it sounded like you Absolutely. can't play pete townsend's music without actually physically having to like beat the hell out of the guitar mm. it's not going to sound like the way he did it you know yeah and so it's stuff like that that is fascinating because when you really pick out who did it which way you look at a guy like ingve who has amazing picking technique but it barely looks like he's doing anything it's like, Absolutely. it's just easy. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned that um, Cracking the Code on YouTube. If yeah. anybody hasn't seen that, go out and check out um, Troy Grady. I'd love to get him on the show, yeah. actually. Um, and that transformed my picking, my understanding of picking of, of fast and how he breaks down all the different players and how some guys skip that last note and put it put in a, a pull-off or a hammer-on to get the pick ready yeah. to jump string and everything. So that, uh, there is a question here that relates to transforming your, your picking and, and guitar approach it says here uh did you this is from jamie f did you find it difficult transforming your picking and guitar approach to go economy hybrid picking legato etc to tackle your dad's music it sounds seamless now but i'm sure it wasn't easy oh yeah it was two years of, of uh, the thing is like learning the techniques is one thing but when they become something you don't have to think about when when you start playing and it just happens naturally that's the part that takes time like i think a lot of people can learn a technique and employ it for certain things but until they don't 
have to think about, oh, now it's time for me to play my sweet picking lick or whatever. When it just starts being incorporated to what you naturally do, that's the part that really takes time. And then you keep tweaking it from there. And a lot of the stuff, the hard stuff that I've had to learn incorporates the sweep picking and hybrid picking and just straight up hammer-ons from nowhere because some stuff is so hard just intervallically where the, the notes are located in my dad's music and then rhythmically with, you know, tuplets or, uh, you know, things that are hidden within a rhythm. And so there's, there's all these uh, tricky, tricky things that I really had to work on. So yes, it was a, a lot of hard work, but over time it started to become natural for me to employ it just because now I have an idea and I just want to see if I can make that happen. And, and those things that you had to try and learn to be able to play your dad's music, where did he get that from? Well, see, the thing is, a lot of the stuff that I played on the guitar was never played on the guitar. So I'm talking about things that were written to be played on marimba or piano or other instruments where they're still hard on those instruments, but they're, they're not easy on the guitar just because, let's say you're doing something on a marimba. Now, when you hit the, the, the marimba, as soon as you hit it, you're going to hear that note. On the guitar, you have to synchronize this hand with this hand, whereas the other one, it's just one hand and it's going straight to the note, Yeah. right? So the timing between some of these things and when you have really difficult intervallic leaps, that makes the picking really tricky because you either have to be able to get in between multiple strings or have these big stretches. And it's the time that it takes to get from one place to another and keep that synchronized especially when things are really fast, that's where the real struggle is. And, uh, you know, I mean, you can look, there's stuff like on Inca Roads or St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that I would have to practice for hours and hours and hours for maybe four or five, six, seven months before even thinking about playing the song even all the way through. You know, so if you're learning something that you're spending 10 hours a day and it's only 10 seconds of music, most people would quit. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, another question there from John Clark. Um, what will it take to bring guitar back to the forefront in mainstream music? You know, anything can be popular if it gets exposure. You know, if there was suddenly a band that had the, the qualities of Van Halen or something and, and they became popular, you'd see a resurgence. It just, it has to be that somebody wants to take that risk on exposing it massively that way. But that being said, there's tons of guitar players that are out there on YouTube and everywhere. There's, I think guitar is pretty popular in the guitar community. And you can find a lot of guitar these days where you couldn't before. And there's a lot of different styles that are popular that you wouldn't think would be as popular. Like it's amazing to me when I see kids that are eight, nine, 10, and they're the style they want to play is Neo soul. And they learn all this stuff and it's like, it's pretty jazzy and chordal and all this kind of stuff. And they got the feel and they, they know the, the voicings. And that's the part that is crazy. Cause you really have to hear that in your head and really want to go for that thing and know a lot about, 
uh, you know, theory and chord progressions and stuff. It, so it's, it's funny when I see like that become a big influence or a thing where it's like, yeah, that's what got me into guitar. Like a guy like Corey Wong, like the funk rhythm stuff. There's a lot of kids that they're going to get into guitar just because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Man, there's some scary players out there. Uh, now, if you go looking for it, it, it might not be on the radio, you know, but if right. you do a search on YouTube, Instagram, etc., man, there's this young guy from Russia, Max Oslo, that I see pop up every yeah, now and then. Yeah, he's crazy. <laughs> but then you have um, uh, Stephen um, uh, uh, Toronto, uh, T-A-R-A, uh, you know, he's the, the guy from um, Australia, Sydney. I think he lives in Sydney, but... He, he's insane. What was his name again? Steven, uh, last name, I think I'm, I think I'm pronouncing it right. Taranto, uh, T-A-R-A-N-T-O. I'm going to have to look him um, up, get him on for a bit yeah. of a chat. Yeah. yeah, no, he's nuts. Uh, so, uh, I mean, picking wise and the, the, uh, the uh, arpeggios that he does, in- incredible. Wow. I have to check it out. Dweezil, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up, one last thing, uh, and this is—I'm I'm relaying a story that Dave Dave Leslie told me 30 years ago, um, and I think it just shows the kind of humor uh, in your family circle. Uh, sure. He told me that when he came to your house, that uh, you guys pranked him and told him, "Look, Dave, forgive me if I get the story wrong, man. Uh, it's a long time ago that you told me this, so I hope you get it right." But apparently, uh, you've said. Look, Frank's really particular about people knowing where we live. So, uh, do you mind if we like stick this bag over your head? And Dave's like, "Yes, let's do that." <laughs> Apparently, everybody else was in on it, and he's driving there in the back of the car with this bag over his head, all excited. Yeah, I'm gonna meet Frank. Gonna meet Frank. You know? <laughs> I I have no recollection of that. It, there's a there's a possibility that something like that could have happened, but it, it it sounds too cruel for something that I would suggest. Well, apparently, okay, if I remember correctly, when he got to the the the, the car got to the front gate, um, I think perhaps your brother even had the, the the torchlight and was like, identify yourself, kind of thing, and he's all excited, going yeah yeah, and apparently the first thing when he rocked up at the door. Frank's just looked at everybody and just went, which one of you guys is, is Dave? And he's like, oh, me. <laughs> he's just looking at him and gone, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's possible. It is possible. But it's funny how like stuff like that is things that, uh, you know, could be such a, a, a shining moment where that if that happened for me, I, I can't even recall it at, the, at this time, you know? So it's, it, it's weird. I've, I've definitely heard um, stories before that where somebody's like, Hey, remember we went to that thing and this and this and this and this happened. I'm like, I don't remember that at all. Like, Oh no. And then you were there and you said this and you did that. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't sound like it happened, but you know, so well, you did. Yeah. 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 It's possible. <laughs> so, yeah, Dweezil, I want to I want to thank you so much for your time, man. Um, coming on, a bit of a bit of a chat. Uh, there's one of the last uh, comment there is Dweezil, you are an awesome interview. Thank you, and I, and I totally agree. Um, I appreciate so, it. Yeah, thank you so much from everybody. Everybody, <laughs> thank you. folks, um, you can show your appreciation a little with a little like and subscribe and all that kind of thing. And um, I will sign off and. Um, Thank you all for your time. 
Bye now. All right, thanks. Thanks.